reading this morning comes from Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28, and Genesis 2, verses 1 through 9, and then 15 through 17. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the side and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Don't you get the sense of the holiness of those words? Uh, very, very, very profound uh, things for us to talk about this morning. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's good to see so many of you. We uh, began last week a series that's going to last us quite a long time, but we are starting at the very beginning of the Bible, and we're going to make our way through the entire Old Testament over the course of a year or so, and we're just going to look at the story of God and God's dealing with us uh, and with the, 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 the world that he's created and ultimately him coming in the Lord Jesus Christ to, to save and to redeem us. And so here we are, uh, yet again at the very beginning here in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. I really don't have much of an introduction this morning because I have so much to say that I want to just get right to it. So if you would with me, I want you to see that there are three word pictures. I hate to use the word images because one of the images I want to talk about is the image. And that can get a little confusing. Uh, so three word pictures, three metaphors, three concepts or ideas that I, I want us to just take special note of from this passage this morning. And they're right there in your outline, which I've provided for you in your worship folder. I want us to think about, talk about together the garden, and secondly, the image, and then thirdly, the Sabbath. Okay, And all three of those things, you'll see them there in those verses. 
And we're just going to take them one by one and work through this together, okay? So let's just get right to it, can we? Because, again, there's a lot. Uh, and I've only got one shot at it, okay? And that's scary for a preacher, so bear with me. Uh, let's start the garden, okay? Look there at verse, verses uh, 8 and 9 of Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God, we're told, planted a garden of Eden in the east, and there he put the man who... He had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was there in the midst of the garden, and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what I want you to see, if you were here last week, this will be easier for you to understand, is that Genesis chapter 2 complements Genesis chapter 1. The transcendent God of power who speaks all things into existence in Genesis 1 is represented here... As a God who is near to his creation, an imminent God, he is a gardener. This is God with his hands in the dirt. It's amazing. Forming man from the dust, breathing life into his lungs. Next chapter we'll see walking and talking with the man and the woman he's created in the cool of the day. Now, let me just review for a minute. Because remember what I said last week. I said that the main point of Genesis 1 and 2 is not to answer... The how and the why questions about creation, but to answer the who, I mean, excuse me, the how and the when questions, but to answer the who and the why questions. And I did not mean by that at all to suggest that the how and the when questions are not important. They're immensely important, but they're not as important as the who and the why. See, we might disagree, and I think probably in this room we do disagree on whether some of us, on whether the days of creation referred to six literal 24-hour days or epochs of time. We might disagree on the issue of whether the earth is a few thousand years old or hundreds of millions of years old. And what I want to say pastorally, to set the pace for us as a church, is it's okay to disagree on those things. We don't have to agree on the how and the when of creation to make sense of these stories because most of the commentators and scholars agree that the structure of the text and the language and the nuances Moses is using in the text suggests that he's primarily concerned with the who and the why. Okay? So he's primarily concerned with who the creator is and why he created and what the implications are for those of us who claim to believe in him and follow him. So Genesis 1 and 2 is history, but it's history with a theological aim. That's the point I want to make. Moses' goal is not historical accuracy as much as it is for him to do theology. And let me give you one example, okay? Because I think this is important for us to kind of say this again this morning. In Genesis 1, and you can look if you have a Bible, God creates the plants on the third day, then the animals that live in the water on the fifth day, then the animals first on the sixth day, and then finally the man and the woman, all, all there on the sixth day. But in here in Genesis 2... We're told before there were plants, verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant had yet sprung up, God creates Adam, so he creates the man first, then the plants, right? Then, then the garden, then come the animals, and then after the animals are created, he creates Eve. So the order is all messed up. And, and a few of you were, were um, courageous enough, I want to say, to post some things about my the sermon last week, and immediately, I mean, it blew up on Facebook within like 20 minutes of, well, people, you know, well, it does not even say the same thing in Genesis 2 as it says in Genesis 1. And that's exactly right. The order's messed up. And it causes a lot of people a lot of trouble, because you see, so is it the way God said it in Genesis 1, or is it the way God said it in Genesis 2? How come the two contradict one another? 
And it really does unnecessarily cause a lot of trouble for people. And I say unnecessarily because this is a perfect illustration of what I'm trying to say. The fact that although Genesis 1 and 2 is history, the primary concern is not history, it's theology. And in ancient historical accounts, the authors would often dischronologize events or use other sorts of literary devices in order to do theology because, remember, they were not concerned with the how or the when as much as they were with the who and the why. And therefore, therefore, this image of God as gardener, forming man from the dust of the earth, God with his hands in the dirt, tells us something about the kind of God he is and what he's doing in the world. It tells us about his character and his purpose, the who and the why, and that's what we want to start this morning by talking about together, okay? So that's the aim. That's where we're headed. Now, what do we learn about who God is? And this is something I wanted to talk about last week, but I ran out of time. Um, But what I want you to see is that Genesis 1 and 2 confront both the ancient mythologies about the creation of the world But they also confront the modern mythologies about creation too. And and by the way, that's one of the reasons I know this is God's word. It's because it confronts ideologies and idolatries throughout the course of human history, okay? Both ancient and modern mythologies. Because you see, the ancient mythologies would say something like this. They all agreed that the material world wasn't real. The, The material world wasn't important. What matters is the spiritual world. So the goal is to escape the world, to get beyond the world of matter, okay? Modern mythologies, on the other hand, all agree that this world is all there is, right? It's something like that. It's that there's no such thing as creation, that that this, all these things that we see, all the stuff we run into on a daily basis is all an accident. There's no creator. The world, this world right here, right in front of me is all there is. And the creation stories here in Genesis 1 and 2 confront both of these sets of mythologies, both the ancient and the modern, because it says, on the one hand, there is a creator. This world's not an accident. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, what? God created. There's a creator. There's a design. And we have to heed that design or life doesn't work. So it confronts the modern mythologies about God and creation. But it also confronts the ancient mythologies. Because here's God with his hands in the dirt, forming man from the dust, planting a garden. So you can't say this world doesn't matter, right? It matters immensely to God. It's important to him. And so it should be important to us too. And yet you still see in Christian circles when we often talk about heaven, we talk about heaven. But when the Bible talks about heaven, it refers to it as the new heavens and the new earth. And in Revelation, at the end of human history, the picture there, it isn't pictured as we all get to escape earth and float up into heaven. What, what is pictured in Revelation To signify the end of the world and human history as we know it is heaven is coming down to earth. In other words, the earth is being transformed into heaven. And so what we see, a doctrine we could, you know, put together if you want to bring all this stuff. God is intimately involved with the world, but he's also distinct from it. And that's the balance that we have to maintain. Against the modern mythologies about creation, Christianity says the world is not all there is. So don't live for this world. Don't live for pleasure. Don't be a hedonist. No offense to Tim McGraw, but don't live like you're dying. Right? But against the ancient mythologies about creation, Christianity says the world is good. I mean, what did God say over and over again in chapter 1, right? Do you remember when we were there last week? What did he say? 
It's good. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's very good, right? So God's purpose, God's purpose in creation involves the world. He loves the world. He's redeeming the physical world. And that means that we should get involved in the world. That when we see something in human society that is broken, we should work to fix it. That's part of Christian ethics because there is God in Genesis chapter 2 with his hands in the dirt. So that's what we learn. That's part of what we learn about who God is here. But what do we learn about God's purposes for creation from this image in the garden? Uh, so let me answer that question too. So that's the who, but what do we also learn about the why here? And you, you need to know, I, I really did not realize until this week how influenced I have been uh, by the men who taught me the Old Testament. Back when I went to seminary, you know, years, you know, way back when, right? I mean, it really feels that way compared to facing this with these guys that are going through it now. The men who taught me Old Testament in seminary were not just professors who taught me the Bible. They were, they were mentors. I mean, they were mentors who really taught me the scriptures. And so everything I think about the Bible, uh, it really comes from my interaction with men like Richard Pratt and Bruce Walke, who were my teachers and professors and mentors in my graduate degree. Richard Pratt, who, who was my Old Testament professor at RTS, would say it this way to us in class. He would say, God's purpose in creation was to turn the world into his glorious palace. And this is what we see him doing here in Genesis 2. Look with me. He plants a garden. Just like the ancient kings who would build magnificent palaces and palace gardens for themselves so that they could walk in the cool of the day and enjoy the beauty and the majesty of all their their power had created, God took a little slice of the earth, situated between a number of different rivers. We're even given kind of the geographical setting there in Genesis chapter 2, and I didn't print it for you. He took a little slice of the earth, and he turned that little slice of the earth into his royal palace garden, and he would come in the cool of the day to walk in the garden and to talk with the man and the woman that he created. And Dr. Pratt made the point, and most people miss it, I think, this garden... Again, this this specific geographical area in verses 10 10 through 14, situated between four rivers, was the only place on the whole earth where God would walk. It was his paradise. The name is literally, the Garden of Eden, literally paradise. Heaven on earth, no sin, no death, holy ground, because holy God resided there. But the point Dr. Pratt made was that was so profound to me was that the test suggests that this was... This was only true, all of these things that are said here, it was only true of this little slice of earth, you know, throughout the whole world. That this garden was the only place where God would come and walk. It was the only holy ground in all the earth. The rest of the earth was not yet the garden of God. It was only prepared for something more. So God's purpose was to take the rest of the earth and to turn the entire earth into his paradise. God's purpose in creation was not one man and one woman in a little garden situated between four rivers somewhere in the Middle East. God's great desire for his creation was that the whole earth would be transformed into his paradise. That the whole earth would be turned into his royal palace gardens. That the whole earth would be filled with his glory. So God's purpose... And creation was to turn the whole world into his glorious palace. And that's the significance of the garden. Secondly, how would God accomplish this work? What tool would he use to transform the world into his paradise? And the answer, of course, 
is the image. And here's what we read. And I'm going to kind of paraphrase Genesis 1, 27 through 29, and also Genesis 2. And here would be the paraphrase. God planted a garden. He took the man, his image, and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And he blessed the man and the woman and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my image and subdue it and have dominion over it. So what we see here is we, we have been created in the image of God. And I cannot tell you the significance and the importance of that biblical concept. It should shape the way we understand who we are. It should shape the way we understand what we've been put on the earth to do. And so it should give us an identity and a mission as well. A job title and a job description, so to speak. And for the few minutes we have together this morning, that's what I would like uh, to show you. is how this idea of our being made in God's image to be his tool by which he would bring the whole world to resemble his palace gardens, his great glorious palace, has incredible significance, incredible implications for how we understand who we are and how we understand what we've been put here to do, okay? So let's just talk about our job title and our job description for a minute, okay? So look with, look with me uh, at some of the details here. The image of God. Okay, think about the way we use the word image. I look in a mirror, although I avoid them actually, but some of you look in a mirror, uh, and when you look in the mirror, you see your image. Or I pull a quarter out of my pocket, Right, And on top of the quarter, there is the image of George Washington. Or, or if Canaan, uh, my 13-year-old, and I are out together anywhere and we happen to run into an old friend who I haven't seen in a long time, without fail, without fail, what do they say to me? Wow, he is the spitting image of his father. And he is. I mean, he is literally in physical form. And with his expressions and his mannerisms and even his dislikes and his likes, he is a mini-me. And, I mean, it really is the truth. And when the Bible talks about the fact that we've been made in God's image, God made us in his image, it means that he made us to mirror him. He made us to represent him. He made us to reflect his character. That, That you are made in God's image means that when people look at you, they should think he's just like his dad. And in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, only the pharaohs and the kings and the emperors were called the images of God. Ancient peoples believed that their kings, that their rulers, were actually lived somewhere in between, if earth's down here and heaven's up here, they believed their kings lived somewhere between heaven and earth, just one step below heaven. Uh, so, 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 for example, Pharaoh in Egypt, which of course is where the Israelites are coming out of as Moses is writing this to them, Pharaoh was believed widely to be a demigod, to be the divine son of the god Ra. And that's pretty typical. He would have been referred to as Ra's image. The image of Ra is how they would have called him. And so the job of the image bearer then, living somewhere here between earth down here and heaven up here, one step below heaven, the job of the image bearer was to learn the will of the gods in heaven, and then to use their political power and authority given them to them by the gods to make their will happen on the earth. That's the cultural background of this whole thing. And along comes Moses, and what does he do? I mean, do you, this is so great. You see this? Moses takes this group of slaves he's leading out of Egypt, and he looks at them, this, this group of ragtag people who can barely put two and two together, whom God has called to himself, and he says to this group of slaves, you are God's image bearers. 
I mean, do you comprehend the political implications of that statement? I mean, what about the personal implications for the Israelites? You tell me, 400 years of slavery, what does that do to the psyche of a people? And you have to imagine, the Israelites are struggling with what we would call low self-esteem, right? We're just a bunch of nobodies, good for nothings. And here comes Moses, and he says, no, you were made in the image of God who created the heavens and the earth. I mean, what does Psalm 8 say? God made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. And crowned him with glory and honor and has given him dominion and put all things under his feet. Moses is saying, that's who you are. You're not slaves. You're not nobodies. You're kings. You see, for us, it's easy to think of the president of the United States as an important man. Whether you like him or not. It's inevitable that his decisions affect Millions of people and alter the course of the world. But the implication, see, of our being made in God's image is that we all are, every single one of us, just as important. That The choices that we make about the vocation to pursue, about how we spend our money, about whether to start a family or not, and where we're going to live, these decisions create a ripple effect that will go on forever and ever and ever. And the reality is, is most of us live smaller lives than we're meant to live. And it's because we don't understand the implications of our being God's image bearers. Now, a perfect illustration of this, and I know it's just another another, um, reason for you to question my manhood, but nevertheless. Um, A few years ago, I went to to Tampa to see The Lion King, uh, the show, the Broadway show, not the movie. Uh, if you've not seen it, I mean, you know, you, all you, you think Disney cartoon. It really is not Disney cartoon. It is, it is amazing. It really is amazing. So don't judge me, okay? Uh, in fact, um, in fact I, it, I was so moved by it uh, that after Ashley and I spent a small fortune to go see it, I immediately purchased t- tickets for me and my two sons to go see it two weeks later because I was so moved by it. Uh, but in, in the show or in the movie, you might be familiar with the story, Simba who is the son of the king and the rightful heir to the throne has left his home because of the threats of his uncle who wanted the throne for himself. And there's one particular point in the story which Simba has fallen in with Pumbaa and Timon, whose motto, of course, is Akuna Matata. Means no worries, right? You You could sing the song. Right? No worries. Eat, drink, and be happy. And what you, what you soon realize is, is he, Simba is unaware that his homeland is wasting away under Scar's rule. Until a childhood friend happens to come across him, she pleads with him to return. Because, again, he is the true king. And to claim his throne, but he's scared. And he's selfish. And his father's death and his father's absence in his life has left him deeply wounded. And I mean, it is a really a marvelous illustration of deformed masculinity. And it's why I took my boys to see it. Uh, he, he is hesitant to take responsibility. He is selfish. He's a coward. He just wants to take it easy. He just doesn't want to be bothered. He wants to live this, this little life, this small little life that he's kind of settled into. And there's a song in the show called Endless Night. That is particularly powerful. He's grieving the loss of his father and confessing how afraid he is to go back 
and to set things right. And he's, he's saying things like, you promised you'd always be there, you know, and you're not here, and I don't know what to do. And he's angry, and he's confused, and he's afraid, and he's upset. And I was all of those things as I listened to them, listened to this man sing this song. And then in the middle of the song, and I don't know how they do it, it is, it's really amazing. But in the middle of the, of the song, his father comes to him in the clouds as he's walking around the savannah and the, the effects are, are awesome. And, and here's what his father, this booming voice of Mufasa, the king, his father comes and he says, Simba. And I wish I could do my James Earl Jones voice. I don't have it. But, you know, you can just imagine this booming Simba and it stops him in his tracks. And here's what his father says. He says, Simba, you've forgotten who you are. You are more than you've become. You are my son. The one true king, you must take your place. I'm just, you know, I'm an absolute disaster. And it's a perfect illustration of what Moses is doing here. He's writing to the nation of Israel, a bunch of former slaves, who are all too ready to sell themselves short and run away from the mission God has given them and live smaller lives than they're meant to live. And here's what he says to them and to us, by the way. Here's the power of us being called the images of God. Moses and the Lord would say to us, you've forgotten who you are. You're more than you've become. You are my image bearers. You must take your place. So that's our job title. We're made in the image of God, but Moses doesn't stop there. See, he also gives us a job description. And so look down at Genesis chapter 1, verses 28. He says he made, he made the man and the woman in his image, and then God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion and all of these things. And it was the job of the ancient kings and the pharaohs, those who went by the title of image, to learn the will of the gods in heaven and then to use their political clout, their power, their fame, their fortune, whatever it might be, to bring about the will of the gods on the earth. And when Moses claims that we are all made in God's image, not just the kings and the pharaohs and the presidents, the implication is that each one of us is charged with this task to use whatever power we have, whatever influence we may have gained, whatever fortune we may have amassed, whatever fame we may have to see that God's will is done on the earth as it is in heaven and to see the whole world transformed into God's glorious palace. That's our job. We've been made to subdue the earth and rule as God's vice regents. We are the tool God intends to use to accomplish his his purpose in creation. And that's true of you, whether you're in politics or a business owner or a teacher or a stay-at-home mom or an eighth grader. We are kings and queens. And there are huge implications. Huge implications that we could spend all day talking about. I just want to mention three. Okay, I want to talk about how this, how this applies to our work, how it applies to our parenting, how it applies to just general ideas about human community and sociology. Okay, but let me just take these one at a time. Think about the implications of this for our work. What are we doing in our work, first of all? What are we, do, what are we to be doing in our work? Tim Keller, who is a pastor in our denomination and has, has written a, a, a commentary, so to speak, on this, on this, this book of Genesis... He, he says this. He says it this way. I thought it was really great. He says, nature's not bad. It needs to be beaten down. Nature's undifferentiated, underdeveloped, 
uncultivated. So when we take a piece of land or a garden and farm it, or preserve it so it can produce its peculiar life splendors, when we take a fabric and make a piece of clothing, when we push a broom to clean up a space, when we use technology to harness the forces of electricity, when we take an unformed, naive human mind and teach it a subject, when we take unprocessed material and turn it into a poignant work of art, when we take undifferentiated tones and pitches, which are just noise, and separate them out to create music, even when we pass a comb through our hair, whenever we bring order out of chaos... Whenever we draw out creative potential, we are continuing God's work of creative cultural development. Just as he subdued the earth in his work of creation, so he calls us now to labor as his representatives in a continuation and an extension of that work. And to the degree, these are my words, to the degree that your work lines up with that, or to the degree that you can at least conceive of your work like that, you'll find great satisfaction in what you do. But not only do we learn about what we, we're to be doing in our work, but I do think we also learn something about the kinds of work we should be doing from all that we're seeing here in Genesis 1 and 2. Martin Luther said, rather scandalously, I might add, that the work of monks and priests and pastors was no different and no more important than the work of ditch diggers and stay-at-home moms. Why? Why? It's because of what we see here. God is a God who not only sweeps his hand across the heavens. However, Jonathan said that so beautifully a few minutes ago. He's also God who gets his hands dirty in the ground. But not only does this apply to our work, there's also an application to our parenting, isn't it? Let me ask, parents, we have a lot of kids. This is why I know some of you don't have kids, but there are a lot of kids running around this place, and so it feels like a good opportunity to to talk to parents for just a minute. Parents, I I wonder, do you act as if you're raising future queens and kings? Do this. Tomorrow morning when your child comes out of their bedroom in the morning, bow and greet them. Good morning, your highness. Heck no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Why, does it, why is it our goal in our parenting to, to, to crush our children underneath the weight of our authority? Why is it not our our work and our job in parenting to help our children conceive of just how big a life God has meant for them to live and the role they're to play? I mean, you want want to do something in the heart of a 12-year-old girl? Greet her on the way out of the bedroom. Good morning, Your Highness. You are a daughter of the king. If you have teenagers in in particular, I'm not suggesting. I mean, don't like the pastor said, I you know. And if, you're, and if you're a kid in here, don't expect that tomorrow and think that there's some kind of authority that your parents must now follow because I made that suggestion. If you have teenagers or if you're in the room and you're a teenager, I wonder, do you talk to them, parents, about how the choices they will make will have a huge impact on the world? About what they will study in school, who they will marry, where they will live, what kind of job they will pursue. These are not just trivial things. These are the kinds of things that can set a trajectory that will change the world forever. In every single child in this church. Because we're all made in the image of God. And we're made to be kings and queens. And that's why C.S. Lewis wrote the Narnia books. Because the kind of children, those children in those books become is what we should be hoping for in our children as well. But then thirdly, and I'm just going to, in passing, there are huge 
implications for human community and sociology, racism, classism, ageism, abortion, how we treat the elderly, all the way down to showing proper courtesy and respect to one another in every area of life, in debate in the political square, whatever it might be, we should go about all of our interaction in human community and the wider society with the idea that every single person we bump into all throughout the day is someone who's been made in the image of God. Now, see, the garden helps us understand God's ultimate purpose in creation, to turn the whole earth into his glorious palace. The image helps us understand our role in that purpose. We've been made by God to rule and to have dominion in his name and to work to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And immediately, of course, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you know we have a big problem, don't we? Because in the very next chapter, which we will spend the next three weeks on, believe it or not, the man and the woman whom God made in his image rebel against him. And instead of co-ruling the world under God's authority, they decide they want to be rid of him so they can rule in his place. They disobey him. They bring about the destruction and curse upon all that God has made. And as a result, they're alienated from God and eventually exiled from his paradise and forced to live in the wilderness of the world. Uh, In both the two movies uh, from the Chronicles of Narnia series that were made first, in both The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Prince Caspian, it's interesting to me that both of the movies begin with Narnia in disrepair. If you remember the stories in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it is winter but never Christmas, which for a child you can imagine is a horrible thing, unless you live in Florida. We don't even know what winter is. Narnia is withering under the rule of the cruel white witch. In Prince Caspian, it's, it's the Narnians are hiding because the Telmarines are in power and Care Paravel, the castle of the true kings and queens, lies in ruins. And at one point in the story, Truffle Hunter the Badger makes C.S. Lewis point for him when he says to Nicobrick the Dwarf, he says, and it's in the movie and the book, we believe, or he says, we beasts remember, even if dwarves forget, that Narnia was never right except when a son of Adam was king. What C.S. Lewis is doing is unmistakable. He's saying to us, our world is not right. It is not the garden of God. There's war and poverty and sickness, selfishness and greed and envy abound. And all of it is because we have failed as God's image bearers. So what do we do? What hope is there in this text for us? And the answer and the hope is found in this last uh, metaphor, this last image, uh, when, God, when God begins to talk about Sabbath. Now, we're going to talk about Sabbath a lot more later on. Uh, but it's here at the very beginning, so I want to address it. So you see Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day. And made it holy. Now, why, why, uh, why the Sabbath? I mean, there has to be a theological reason why this is here, right? Did God need to rest? Was God, theological question of the day, was God tired uh, and just worn out and out of creative ideas at the end of his, his creating in Genesis chapter 1? I mean, Exodus thirty-one seventeen says, In six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. What is that? Did God need to be refreshed? Of course not. So why does he work six days and rest on the seventh? And the answer is, I really believe, he's teaching us something about our work. 
God did not rest after six days because he needed to rest. He rested because we need to rest. That is, the Sabbath is a hint for us. That even here at the very beginning, that we are not to play the role of hero in this story. Our work is not the work that matters the most. I mean, you tell me, why is it so hard to rest for some of you? Of course, I'm not talking to myself at this point. I, you know. If you're resting and you're not working, then that means no work is getting done, right? Or is it? You see, that's the spiritual lesson. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer, the Hebrews writer says uh, that this is what it means to be a Christian. If you want to know what faith and repentance looks like, he says in, in verse 10, he says uh, that faith and repentance means we enter God's rest and we rest from our works as God has rested from his. Now, does that mean you stop working? No, of course not. It means this. It means that you, you and I, if we're, gonna, if we're going to, to, to figure this thing out, you and I have to know that our work matters, but we also have to know that it doesn't matter ultimately. You have to know, see, what it means for us to approach this text in repentance and faith this morning is to know that our work matters. We can't put that aside. We have to live knowing our work matters, but we also must know that it doesn't matter ultimately. And here's what I mean. If you're not resting in Christ, then what's going to happen is, is you'll begin eventually at some point, somehow, in some way, you'll begin to think too highly of your work. And one of two things will probably happen. Either you'll be so full of self-importance, you'll, you'll think so highly of yourself and your work. You'll get bossy with people. You'll be arrogant and rude. And you'll push people around and, and whatnot. Or you'll, lit, it'll be so, you'll think so highly of your work, but you'll be so aware of your failure. You'll live in fear. You'll be crushed by it, be paralyzed, and opt for a small, safe life with no adventures. But here's the hope. And it's this. In Colossians 1, Paul is writing about Jesus' supremacy. And did you notice? And you can look back at your assurance of pardon. It's there. In verse 15, he says this of Jesus. He says, he is the image of God. The firstborn of all creation. Now, what does Paul mean? He calls Jesus, Jesus God's image. And remember, what does it mean to be made in God's image? It means that we're to mirror him, that we're to represent him to reflect his character, that when people look at us, they should see him. And we've failed miserably at this, right? But Jesus Christ, God who became man, the true man, true humanity, has succeeded at doing this perfectly where we have failed. He perfectly mirrored God's love and his holiness and his justice and his compassion. He perfectly represented God. He perfectly reflected his character. Hebrews 1, chapter 3, calls Jesus the radiance of God's glory and the exact, the exact representation of his being. And what was it Jesus said, do you remember? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the image of God, and that means that he is the one who will ultimately carry out our job description. It is through him. He is the one who will fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And just as through him all things were made at the beginning, so also through him all things will be remade. He is the one who will take the earth and heal it and turn it into God's glorious palace. And in Genesis 2, verse 2, God cries out for joy, it is finished. Why? Because he'd finished the work of creation, but centuries later, Jesus, hanging on a cross with his very last breath, would yet again cry out, it is finished. Why? Because he'd finished the work of recreation. 
He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father's will. All the way up to his dying breath, he died for the sins of the world and dealt the death, the death blow, so that now death is working backwards. Everything sad is coming untrue. The kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's an amen spot, Rick. Thanks. Appreciate it. I do. Even Presbyterian preachers need some encouragement every now and then, right? Jesus was successful where we failed. And he will continue to succeed until every enemy is put under his feet and he reigns over all. That's what the Bible says. He is the image of God. And so even here, this passage is meant to point us to him and his work. He's the hero. I hate to inform you, not you and me. So where's there, let me finish. Where's there a direct line of application for you in this? Where's, where's your sphere of authority or leadership, you know, where you are... Oh, just direct line of application for how you are called to um, subdue the earth and, and have dominion over it, whatever it might be. Is it your work? Is it your parenting? Is it in your marriage? Is it in a friendship? Where is it? Let me ask a question. Are you resting in Jesus? Here's the thing. When that begins to make sense to you, then it will humble you enough that you won't take yourself or your work so seriously. You won't be full of self-importance and push people around. But at the same time, it will make you hopeful enough And confident enough that you won't have to settle because you're afraid for a life that is smaller than the one you've been made to live. You can risk and dream and dare to do great things for God and God's kingdom. See, humility and hope, that's what we need. And the only way to get it is to heed the call to Jesus to rest. You see, the irony is this. When we begin to rest, when we stop trying to be the hero and put all of our hope in him... Remember, not, taking our, not, not saying our work's not important, but knowing that our work is not important ultimately. When we begin to rest and stop trying to be the hero and put our hope in him, and when we really begin to believe the gospel is true, then a radical change starts to take place in our lives. See, the promise of the gospel is not just that Jesus succeeds where we have failed, but that when we believe in him, we are united to him by our faith so that his power begins to work in our lives. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us and begins to work powerfully in and through us. And so here's the way Paul puts it and how he describes the Holy Spirit's work in Colossians chapter 3, which I wish we could have printed, but there was no place to put it. He says, here's the instructions. Put the death, sexual immorality and covetousness and all these things. And once you once walk, but now you must put them away. Don't do them anymore, in other words, because you have put off the old self. This is, this is Christian conversion he's describing. You've put off the old self, characterized by sin and selfishness, and you've put on the new self, listen, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The gospel is this. Jesus is the image of God, but also by the power of his Holy Spirit, he is restoring God's image in us so that he can literally do what God commanded the man and the woman here to do, to fill the earth with those who bear his image. He is recreating in he is recreating us in God's image so that in him we have the power and the wisdom and the resources and the energy to go into all the world and evangelize and make disciples and to turn the world into his glorious palace and to fill the earth with the images of God and to subdue it until every enemy is under our feet. And the kingdom belongs to our Lord Jesus. See, if you're not resting, you're hoping him. The true image of God. If you're still hoping in yourself, in your work, 
and not in him and his work, then you'll run around building little kingdoms to your own glory. And that's why things are such a mess in the first place. But if you and I, if we begin to rest in him and hope in him, we'll find the humility we need to serve him and not ourselves. We'll find the hope that we need to avoid living smaller lives than the one we've been created for. And we'll begin to get this work done. And that's our hope. So let's pray together this morning. Can we, Father? We are overwhelmed at times at the work that you've given us to do. And yet uh, we confess to you that much of the trouble that we experience and much of the trouble that is in the world is because we have mistaken and taken uh, for granted uh, what you've asked of us. And we have uh, thought too highly of ourselves. So please do forgive us. Uh, we have ignored you and, and become self-sufficient and tried to rule and have authority in our own name instead of in yours. We missed the hint that you've given us here that ultimately it is your will and your work that will prevail. And so, Father, turn our hearts back to Jesus again in repentance and faith. And may we look to him and hope in him and trust in him, but not in a way that we somehow put aside our work as if it is not important. But may we rest in him and hope in him and trust in him so that we might have what we need to then go and get busy in the work that you've called us to do. Help us, Father, to bear your image. Help us to raise children, to know what it means for them to be made in your image. Help us uh, to multiply and subdue the earth and fill it and have dominion in a way that brings honor and glory to you, both in Winter Haven, in Nicaragua, in the places that we work, in Mbali, Uganda, and to the utter ends of the earth, we pray, so that you might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, The Sabbath is a call for us to come to him in faith and repentance and to receive uh, the rest and the benediction that we need. Just as God spoke a benediction over the creation, it is good, it is good, it is good. Your heart, more than anything else, more than it needs oxygen, more than your lungs need oxygen, your heart needs to know uh, and to, to hear and to sit under the benediction of God. And so that's the promise of this benediction, that God would look at you if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he would say, man, that's good. And that that would be the power for you to go uh, and to become heroic, knowing he's the hero. See, that's the irony. Is he's the hero, and knowing that is what the very thing that makes you heroic. And so receive the promise of this benediction then and rest in it, and then go and do the work he's called you to do. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Mm-hmm.